Well, greetings, everybody, and welcome to Inside Curling's special edition called Daily Draw for Monday, February 21st. Warren's in Vancouver, I said. I was in Edmonton. Now I'm in Florida. Kevin's in Connecticut. He's back in Edmonton. Producers are in Toronto. So this is the, the last day of doing this. Cool Bet's a proud sponsor of curling and, frankly, all things ice-related. The logo's a polar bear, after all. If you love sports, make sure you join the thousands of people already enjoying life inside the Cool Bet community. So, boys, here and gone, uh, as quick and as a blink of an eye, it started a few weeks ago, and now we're going to put a big bow. Kevin, you went shopping, you got a big bow that you're going to put on the Olympics, and so is Kevin, to give us a wrap. We're going to talk about a few things with this. Uh, Tiebreakers became a big issue, how they should do it. Uh, Last Rock, who has the hammer? The third one is Canada's struggle on the world level. They They only came away with the men's bronze out of the three events. People want to know if we got to do anything to fix it up or change it. So we're going to talk about that. So, Kev, let's go to you first. How are you, my man? Always a long stint at the Olympics, but the Olympics are fantastic. High octane, and uh, I love it. Okay, very good, Kevin. Lots of stuff to talk about. First item is tiebreakers. Tons of people weighing in on that, on our Facebook page and our Facebook group and the emails that we get. So, Warren, tell us about that and everything that's going into trying to figure out who gets to go to the playoffs and if there's tiebreakers, how does it all happen? Well, this is going to be discussed a lot, I think, in the next uh, period of time ahead. Anyway, the question is to have tiebreakers or not to have tiebreakers. And the WCF decided a couple of years ago to eliminate tri- tiebreakers from all of its events, including the Olympics. If ties exist following the round robin, the first thing is considered is the record between the two teams involved, or three teams involved in this case. And if that doesn't break the tie... And the next point of reference is the draw shot challenge, which is the draw to the button each team throws prior to the start of each game to determine who's going to have last rock. These distances are all added up, and at the end, it gives you a number, and they rate the teams 1 to 10. And uh, at the conclusion of the women's event, unfortunately, Canada ended up number 10th. Two other teams, Japan and Great Britain, all at 5 and 4. And in the draw shot distance, they didn't make it. So the position automatically meant that Canada was eliminated because here's how it goes. With three teams tied, they first look at the record between the teams, and it was tied one and one, and then they go to the draw shot challenge. So the question is, in something this crucial, is this the best way to break a tie? Might it be reviewed? Might it be changed? I think Gushu finished sixth in the DSC, and of course Jones was tenth. So the Canadians have been having trouble. I think this maybe needs to be reassessed as to how you're going to determine this whole position. I understand the challenge of tiebreakers and the timing allowed. Canada allows for one tiebreaker round. So basically what that means, if in Canada, if two teams are tied for a spot, no problem. They can, they can break the tie. If three are tied again, they rank two in and one gets eliminated. So it's better, but still not perfect. I guess there's a lot of things you could look at. Some interesting suggestions have been put to us. One person suggested, why don't we take the first end of the game and add up all the points you scored in the first end for the entire event, and that'll determine your your positioning in any kind of tiebreaker. Interesting. Uh, Other people have suggested, well, maybe we add the points scored in each game and the points difference between the teams involved could deal with it. Maybe the draw the button for the breaking of ties need to be done needs to be done after the round robin. So there could be certainly time where you could end the round robin, take about an hour, prepare the ice properly, and then maybe do a draw where maybe all four players were involved in determining that positioning. Maybe that would be better. But I think regardless of what happens, they've got to take a look at it because I think 
there's too much involved to probably determine who's going to be in or out simply by a draw the button, draw to the button, draw to the prior of each game at the end of a practice session. What do you think, Kevin? Well, yeah, to, to save time for tiebreakers, uh, in your, what you said, uh, Warren, where in Canada they save time for one. Well, are you supposed to save time for two or for three? Like, what, you know, what do you do from an organizing committee standpoint? So, you know, that is certainly true with tiebreakers when you have a big event like, well, any, any big event, actually. How much time do you want to allot for tiebreakers? Then there aren't any. Now what do you do? You just leave the arena black for, and dark for, what, a day? You know, you can't do that. So that, that's a major problem. Um, when it comes to round robins, I've said this quite a lot with a 10-team, nine-game round robin. You come into that event thinking 7-2 is your goal. That will definitely get you in, probably at least hammer in the semi. Six and three, you're safe, probably wouldn't have hammer in the semi, but you're in the playoffs. And then five and four, you're on, like you're on the edge. You know you're on the edge. If you enter an event and you're five and four, you're barely above 500. It was really unfortunate there was a three-way tie and somebody got booted out um, because, of, because of the draw uh, challenge. But the teams were at five and four. To me, I, I don't know. I don't know. I know it's a problem, but how big of a problem is it? Because you're obviously not playing well. You just squeak into into the conversation. So I'm not sure if, if this is a, as big a deal as we're making it or not. Um, it was a big deal because it was Jennifer Jones, and of course, we're a Canadian, so, so we're all hoping for Jennifer, but that's not the big picture conversation we're having here. So is there time for tiebreakers? Probably not. Not in the, as our sport grows and, and you're booking arenas and you're going to the next event and the next event and the next event. Got to remember, we're talking about Worlds and Olympics. You talk about Grand Slams. We've all had lots of talks about tiebreakers there. And then if, you're, if we're going to go down the World, uh, the World Cup path and have a bunch of those events, pretty soon you're going to have events where you, know, you fly, out, fly out on the Sunday night when you're done and you're flying into some other city on the Tuesday getting ready to go and you're squeezing the times table as quick as close as you can there's just no time for tiebreakers so it's a matter of figuring out okay if you're not going to have tiebreakers well how, how are we going to decide and and that could be lots of different ideas but to, to have tiebreakers or not I think is sort of a done deal there just isn't time as our sports is kind of exploding right now with with growth so uh, I don't think we want to impede the growth by by thinking tiebreakers but I do think you know we just have to make it as fair as we can I think the other interesting thing that happened here, and we'll do this at another show, is the playoff system. And I, I, I'm against this uh, one place four, two, three, place three. I always have been because it's so unfair and, and, and unequal. I think in any p- tiebreaker uh, playoff situation, a fourth place team uh, should never be playing a first place team in sudden death uh, without the first place team having some kind of an advantage in that situation. And, and in the Japan versus Switzerland, that one semifinal game, Switzerland was at eight and one and Japan was at five and four. Three games difference. And to go out there, the only advantage Switzerland had was they had last rock in the first end. Again, I think that's something else that really needs to be weighed, but that's a topic for another day. And, and TV, right, Warren and Kevin, you've always said that's that's one of the issues, right? With, you know, trying to book, you know, events and around, and around the TV schedules, it's really difficult, right, to do that. Although, Kev, I, I love this idea of adding up through the round robin, adding up how many points you got in the first end, and then the guy with the biggest total. You like that or not? Maybe that's the key. I don't know. <laughs> uh, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what the key is. Um, I, I do see the problem. Is the problem as big as what we think? I'm not sure because if you're if you are on the edge, yeah. Before going in the event, you know what the goal is. And if you don't meet your goal, if you end up going five and four, you know you're on the edge. You, you know it. Mm-hmm. So, um, uh, 
you know, is unfortunate in this one particular case. Seven and two is, is what you're wanting to be. Hey, of course, undefeated or, or, or one loss, sure. But that's not really the goal. The goal is always seven and two. That's the goal. Uh-huh. If you meet your goal, you'll be good. And if you don't, then yeah, you're, you're, you're risking potential disaster. Okay, the other one is the value of the last rock, uh, you, know, in the, you know, having hammer. Up to a f- few years ago, it was like, okay, if you, if you got hammer, you get to, you know, keep it and get last rock in the next end. But there's many more reasons right now to, to have the hammer. We saw some pretty interesting stuff at the games. I said, I got a phone warning, Kevin, right now. I just saw John Schuster throw a rock away. <laughs> and uh, what's that all about, Warren? Ex- explain to us. Uh, about all the stuff that's happening with the hammer? I, I think instantly this has become a problem in the men's set of things more so than the women's, but it seems in men's curling at the world level, the hammer has become really important because we're seeing people throw what I would call a Hail Mary shot and from the old football term from teams that don't want to go into an extra end or the final end without last rock. And I think, as you mentioned, the most interesting case was the one game where USA skip Schuster threw his last rock into the boards in the ninth end when he could have drawn for one and tied the game, but he threw the rock away. The opposition counted one, and Schuster was now down two playing the 10th end, but he had last rock. So obviously this indicates last stone in the first end is more important than ever before. And the question again we have to ask is drawing the button prior to the game in the way they are currently doing it, the best way of determining who has last rock in the first end. Is there possibly again other ways we could consider doing this? Or will a no-tick rule being introduced to help to resolve it. My thought is on this uh, draw the button because it's become, again, a very technical issue to some degree. And depending on do you have first practice or second practice, and if you've got first practice, the other team gets to watch, et cetera, et cetera. Maybe we've reached a time with this where it has to be the first thing that happens at the start of a game. And so you do your practicing, you have your break period, and then you come back, and this is part of the telecast. The two teams throw a draw to the button is the first thing they do to determine who's going to have last rock in the first end. Maybe that would help to make it a little better. I don't know. Kevin, what do you think? Well, you know what? Um, watching the Super Bowl, I'm not a huge NFL fan, but I, I did watch it this year. It's, it's a fairly big deal. Um, who wins the toss getting the ball first or second half? Well, curling, maybe maybe we've got to a point where we need to look at uh, our sport being in, yes, eight or ten ends, but inside of those ends or outside those ends, you've got halves. And maybe the person who wins the hammer or wins the toss, or wins the draw, or wins whatever you want to do to discover it, can choose hammer in one or five or six, depending if it's an eight or a ten in game. And that way, you can go after it in the first half. Maybe you can get a two or three point lead, knowing that, oh, oh, the other team's got that hammer in the second half to start. And maybe, maybe that's where we have to go, and that way it equalizes a little bit. Now, maybe it is still a draw shot challenge. Maybe it's not. Maybe it's just a coin flip. If you have Hammer starting the second half versus the first half, but it's certainly less of an advantage because there's two halves. If, if, if you can manage to get her a two-point two lead going into the second half, knowing you don't have Hammer, at least you got a lead. And that's, I guess that's probably, if Hammer matters that much to start the game, then I guess maybe putting it into two half games is the most fair way we can do our sport. And it seems to me that we should be having a look at that because you're right. Somebody like Gushu or, or Nicodine that can control, or even Bruce Mother, there's so many good teams, um, that can control the hammer from start to finish. They're really good at it. Brad Gushu, probably the best at it right now. 
if he has hammer to control the hammer. Uh, he's very good at that. But if there's two halves, hmm, that'd be interesting to at least have an event or two to test it. I like that idea. Yeah, two, two games in one game. So very cool. Uh, lots of uh, lots of big topics here. Uh, the last uh, is there's been tons of talk, tons of debate, tons of back and forth, uh, particularly after the mixed doubles, uh, e- even going into it about, uh, you know, with COVID, how they had to select a team and Rachel Holman and John Morris were picked for it. Uh, not everyone liked that idea, but, you know, I think Curling Canada's hands were tied when it came to that. They did not um, make the playoffs. The women did not make the playoffs, and Gushu won a bronze medal. And we haven't been doing that well over the last several events on the world level. So people are going, okay, what's wrong? What's wrong with Canada? Are we just getting beat by really good teams? Or do we need to fix up, Warren, our program? Well, I think, I think we have to take a look at it without question. And there seemingly has been a reluctance to do that up until now, but I think it requires uh, a huge big room discussion. I have given this a huge amount of thought in the last uh, few days. What can be done that doesn't completely disturb the situation that currently exists? We seem to be really, really married to this uh, provincial playoff system for the Briar and Scotties, which impacts the Olympics, impacts everything, because you now can only construct teams really that are from the same province. I know... There's all sorts of variations they've allowed you to have that pretty much can still have a team from different parts of the country. But is that the way we want to do it? And I think we reached a point in time where there's some things need to be simple, maybe initially. And I've sort of suggested maybe this is a a three-phase or two-phase approach to life. I think the first thing that needs to happen is they need to get rid of the residency rule. I think you can have teams from various provinces represented at the Canadian Championship, the Briar and Scotties. But let's dice, douse the, the residency rule. If you don't have to live in that province to participate out of it, that could probably be the, the most important thing I think they could do initially, which could allow you now to structure a team from anywhere in Canada as you desire. I think make the Brian Scotties, it's now 18 teams, leave it at 18 teams. Get rid of Team Canada, have four wildcard teams. I, I think that would, again, help to ensure that all the best teams are going to be in the competition and run two pools of uh, nine, as they did this year, but then go into a page playoff. The page playoff is the fairest, the most desirable way to determine a champion when you run two pools. And why they've gone to that system they have, where, again, you've got teams coming up from the rear that could be as low down as six, that can be put on equal footing with a top team, I, I don't think is, is right. So that would be my suggestion. That's the initial thing they could do. Maybe in year two, they could take a, a further step. And this seems to be a lot of people are beginning to, to suggest this. That the winner of the Briars and Scotty does not go to the Worlds. The top four teams from the Briar and Scotties, however, would go to the Canada Cup. And besides those four teams, you take the next four highest ranks, and they would have the, those would be the eight teams in the Canada Cup. The winner of the Canada Cup goes to the Worlds. They've now got about three months to four months to prepare for that. And that's been settled and done for that particular year, and you go through the same cycle. So that's a slight tweak, but I think could help things considerably. And then once we get down to the Olympic year, I think everybody seems to be pretty much on side that the trials are too tight to the Olympics. So maybe at least to start with, run the uh, men's and women's in maybe early October in the mixed doubles at the end of October, allow people to play in both. And I think those slight tweaks could maybe begin to start to change things in, in a little different direction. I don't know. What do you think, Kevin? Well, you know, whenever whenever Warren says, Jimmy, I've been thinking a lot about this lately. And all I can think of, all I, all, my brain goes right to Winnie the Pooh in his thinking spot. And I wonder, I wonder, where's, where's Warren's thinking spot? Is it like in Stanley Park on a, like an old tree or like, 
what is it? So anyway, my mind always goes to, I don't know, I got, I got a weird mind, but anyway. You do have a weird mind, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. Yes. Picking teams or getting teams or figuring out teams. Yes, we cannot do it regionally. That has to be gone uh, because it just weakens our, our chances of getting the very best team possible. You've only got a few top tier players in, a, in any country. We may have more depth. Like out of 100, we've got a few players that are close to 100. And we've got super good players that are at 90. And then we've got super good players that are at 85. But the 85 ones aren't as good as the people that are almost at 100. But they're real good curlers. So we've got to be a little careful. When it comes to regional, you might force a 97% player to team up with an 85 because that's all you got in your city. Well, now you're, you know, that, that 97 is good enough. They, you know, you win a trials or you win to go to the worlds, but you're dragging along an 85 with you. Well, that's not good. Somehow that's going to weaken our chances of getting on the podium as things get as difficult as they are right now. I really think a training camp situation that doesn't really exist now at all uh, for young people in the three disciplines, being women's, men's, and mixed doubles, and then training camp situation in adult curling, if you want to call it that, uh, or high performance, or whatever you want to call it, for the three disciplines. And it has to be quite often. Now, the worry I've got, anytime you go a national anything, it becomes political. And right now, do we have anybody at a national body capable of running a decent training camp? I don't know if we do or not. Uh, or could they organize it? You know what I mean? That, that's the problem right now. So once in a while, you might get somebody in charge who's really, really good. And over that 10-year period, whoo this is going to be great. You get these great training camps and everybody's learning a ton and it's terrific and everything's growing nicely and we're winning championships. But that person gets, you know, tired of it and, and they go on to do other things. And then you end up with a dud. Well, oh boy, how do you get rid of a dud in a governing body? Like we got lots of them and you can't get rid of them. So it's a, it's a problem. And so I, I don't have the solution. I think some kind of a training camp situation is important, especially with our young curlers. So that at least they meet each other. Like we're so worried about this regional stuff that the, the best curler in BC doesn't meet the best curler in Ontario for quite some time. And when they're 13 or 14, we know they're the best in those two provinces. We, we know that, but they never get together because it's all regional. But at a national training camp where you get all these young people together and they get to meet each other and they go, wow, you are good. I heard about you. I saw you on Twitter or whatever. Jeez. But look at the way you throw the rock and all of a sudden they become friends. And guess what? That's your next Bruce Mowat, Grant Hardy pair. You know, and that's the kind of thing that we really got to build are these relationships with young people. And then that way, and it's more fun anyway, Jimmy, if you get all these young people together, it's just great anyways. Uh, but but they feed off each other and get better because they push each other, and we're just not doing that. I don't I don't I don't know where we would do that right now in curling. I don't see that happening, and uh, that's something that needs to happen Canada wide. In these, maybe it can be East and West training camps. Certainly, once a year, you'd have to get a national training camp together for the three disciplines, and wouldn't that be fun? Oh my goodness! When I was a kid, if you can imagine, we're all going to go to Winnipeg to this curling training camp. You're going to have, I don't know, 96 kids total, 48 female, 48 male, and you're going at 14 to 16 years old. Oh, well, how much fun would that be? So anyway, this isn't really difficult to think about. You know, it's a little more difficult maybe to organize, but not really. I, th I think it's kind of a no-brainer. It's just something that's never been done. We're going to talk about this more in depth on the, on the weekly show of Inside Curling coming up later this week. 
Europe spends a lot of money that you know on their on their teams to develop them and give them funding. And uh, you guys have both said, well, th- these teams can't curl full time like like they can in Europe with their programs. They can't afford it. There's, there's not enough money there for them. So they're not going to be able to have half as much time on the ice as the European teams. See that as an issue, Kev? Like, do we got to get more dough for these teams? More funding? Well, if you have a, a, a training center, let's just say we have a, a, a national training center, they do in, in uh, Scotland, but let's even just training camps, whatever way you want to look at it. That, that's, that's an entity. And that entity can be sold to a sponsor. Wouldn't it be great for a sponsor? And I'm not going to say any names because who knows, but uh, some big company who's going to be sponsoring this training camp scenario and we start winning. And that company name, that corporate name is attached to our success on the world stage. Oh my, what a huge sponsorship and advertising opportunity for a company. That it, Obviously that doesn't exist right now, but you could certainly set that scenario up. And, uh, and there's your funding model, Jim, that you're talking about. It can be through corporate, not through government. What about you, Warren? We need more cash. I want more cash if I'm going to become a good curler. Well, that's a that's a challenge to some degree. Certainly at the moment, uh, Curling Canada puts funding towards six men's teams, six women's teams, I think is the number. And they, they get a reasonable amount of money. But I, I think maybe we're spreading it too thin. Maybe that needs to be reassessed, reassessed as well. I mean, I have in my mind that maybe teams need to be developed uh, at the top end. Maybe there's there's three t- tiers. There's four in each tier. So you got 12 teams and they... The top four are getting most of the money. The ones below are getting a little, and the ones in the in the coming up tier get a little less. Maybe that's one way of looking at. It. I know our top teams certainly that are on the tour all the time, and that's been mentioned in some of our Facebook discussions. They have a fair amount of sponsorship money, and probably they have a little more money in their hands even than these European teams. So those European teams that are are doing this pretty much as a full time venture, they're not uh, getting rich by any far stretch of the imagination. So. It's again requires a whole assessment as to how this goes forward, and it comes through discussion and probably some agreement. First of all, what we have isn't working right. How can we do things better? And also, how can we look at better developing things at the lower level? So we got we have a system in place. And when we talk on the weekly show, you'll hear about the system that Scotland has in place as to how they go about it, which is quite differently from what is happening in Canada. Yeah, the, you know, you talk about the big table discussion. I think we're going to be looking forward to. Uh, the Rachel Homans and the Flurries and the Jennifer Jones and the Brad Jacobs and the Gushu, Kevin Cooley, what, what they're going to begin to say about this, what their opinion is of, of why Canada's not performing as well as we think they should. So thank you all for tuning in. And thank you to CoolBet, a proud sponsor of Curling and Frankly, all things ice-related. The logo's a polar bear after all. If you love sports, make sure you join the thousands of people already enjoying life inside the Cool Bet community. Also, one of our producers, Jonathan Brazo, has a daily blog, I guess. We can call it that. Yeah, uh, Sportsnet.ca, check it out. It's called Eight Ends with Jonathan Brazo. That makes sense. Want to send us an email, insidecurling at gmail.com. Check out our Facebook page, our Facebook group. Thanks a lot to Rod Paulson for looking after all of that. Our two hosts, Kevin Martin, Warren Hansen, will take all your questions. Okay, and we're going to try and answer them. They're in the Hall of Fame, by the way. Okay, I'm not. Uh, just in case you were wondering, uh, not yet. <laughs> yes, you will be <laughs> at Curling Inside. You want to check us out on Twitter. So thanks everyone for tuning in. Uh, we look forward to doing this in f- four years from now when we'll do it again. Hopefully, it's in a better time zone, Kev. 
Italy, Italy, man. It's not much better. Oh, so much for that. Okay. <laughs> so much for that. <laughs> okay, boys, off we go. And uh, thanks again for everyone for tuning in. And uh, thank you, Warren. Thank you, Kevin. It's, it's been great. And thank you, Sportsnet. We'll talk to you later, everybody. This is the last show of Daily Draw. <laughs>